0: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. First of all, I want to say I'm so glad you guys made it out this morning with the snow and all, really more of a wintry mix. Probably half of our congregation got anywhere between 6 and 10 inches of snow, and the rest of you guys who live locally probably didn't even see two. So kind of a weird storm. Uh, We had eight or nine inches, so I was up early, and here I am, ready to get into God's Word, and I do appreciate everyone being here for this time in God's Word. Now, I want to say this. I want to say that uh, I was thinking a lot about uh, what I would teach today, and uh, I guess it was last Sunday, I was having a conversation with some folks, and uh, we were talking about epiphany, which, if you don't know, is a fancy word for Three Kings Day or Tres Reyes. It's a, it's a time, January 6th, it was yesterday, but it's the time that many, many people... Am I there? Okay, there. You lost me? Okay. Sure? Okay. All right. I don't know what happened there. Um, it's a time when many people throughout the world, especially Latin America, uh, actually throughout the world, they really do celebrate Christmas on Three Kings Day. Uh, But what I thought we might do today, have a little fun, since uh, it is the day after what we call Epiphany, I thought we'd look at Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and it's Communion Sunday as well. So what I'd like to do is I would like to just spend a few minutes talking about the Magi, which are sometimes called the three kings, as I've said, or sometimes the wise men. In, in New Jersey, they might be wise guys. But here we have an opportunity to dispel some of the myth and tradition and look at the word of God and really just take in what it really says and what history tells us about the wise men. And then finally ask the question, are we wise enough to seek him the way they did? So many years ago. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for getting us here safely today. We pray that you'd help us to just continue to stay focused on you in our lives. Help us to value not only our relationship with you, which we certainly do, but our relationship with others, which is really why we come together for church. We can spend time with you anywhere at any time but you graciously give us the opportunity at least twice a week here at Calvary Chapel to gather as a church family. We do not take that for granted. There are many places of the world where this is a luxury at best, uh, prohibited at worst. Uh, and so, Lord God, we understand what you've given to us, and we thank you for it. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Enlighten us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't mean to be a Grinch, but I oftentimes enjoy poking behind the traditions and the myths and the misunderstandings of what actually happened during the times that the Bible was written. And when you do that, you learn some things. You learn some valuable things. One of the things you learn is that mankind has a penchant for changing the truth and making it a little bit more romantic and fanciful. Uh, we like a good story. So that's why the Word of God is so important to us, because it is not a story. It is not the Bible's story. It's the account of God's Word. Now, in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, in verses 1 through 11, we have the arrival of the Magi. Now, let's look at just verses 1 and 2, Matthew's Gospel, and we'll get back into our regular study next week in the book of Genesis, in chapter 11. But for today, let's have some fun. So we read that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I want to point out where did they see the star? In the east. Where did they come from? The east. So the first thing that most people don't take a moment to think through, is they saw the star in the east. Now, that star is about to guide them, but before that, understand, they saw something in the heavens in the east, which is where they're from, some prediction, some astronomical event that helped them to understand that the Jewish Messiah had been born. Now, we'll talk more about this, but these magi or wise men were actually median priests. You've heard of the Persians and the Medes or the Medes and the Persians. Uh, these are the Medes. These are Median priests. They're a, a class or a caste of priests within the Median people. Now, today, uh, the people group known as the Kurds are descended from the Medes. And the Kurds are very a very different group of people from the Persians, who are Iranian, you know, today, uh, and the other people groups. And they still exist today. They don't have their own country, but the area with the Kurds are primarily located today, is in northern Iraq. It's sometimes referred to as Kurdistan, but there really isn't a country. It's a people group, and uh, they live there even today. But Median priests were referred to as the Magi. Most of what we associate with the Magi today is from early church tradition. It's not not really true. In fact, most have assumed that there were three Magi, and this is because they brought three specific gifts. So it works out well. I remember uh, when I was a young person, probably seven or eight, I was chosen, and by chosen I mean my parents said I had to, uh, be one of the kings in the Christmas pageant, and uh, so my job was to wear that crown, which was kind of cool, have this sort of strange taffeta robe, and then walk down the aisle singing for everyone in the congregation, we three kings of Orient are, and I was given one verse, you know. So I I remember that. Didn't enjoy it very much. Uh, But, yes, so you always kind of think three kings. So if you get a Bible trivia question that says how many wise men or magi were there, don't say three. Because we're not actually told how many. We're just assuming that there were three because of the gifts. By the third century, they were viewed as kings. They were actually king makers, not kings. They, we'll see in a minute, they, they actually chose the king Uh, of that area of the world back in ancient times. But by the 3rd century, they were viewed as kings. By the 6th century, they were actually given names. The first names they were given were Bithasarea, Melachior, and Gathaspa. And they were associated with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which is interesting because we just studied the sons of Noah recently. And these three sons of Noah are credited with being the ancestors of all mankind on the earth today, which is interesting because when you think about it, uh, Adam and Eve uh, had children, many children, and then they had children and lots of children. And then ultimately, with many, many people alive at the time of the flood, a large percentage of the gene pool was destroyed and needed to be for reasons we've already studied in our, our studies in Genesis. And you're left with the three sons of Noah who then begin to repopulate the earth. And we were, I think we were talking about this just last week. Uh, the, the Tower of Babel actually took place somewhere between 101 years and 339 years. There was a, a time period of the, of the lifespan of a man by the name of Peleg. We're told that in his lifetime the uh, Tower of Babel took place. So did it happen when he was born? Did it happen when he was very old? We don't know. Generally, somewhere in the two to 300 range, we believe, which I did a little calculation this week because I, I started to have questions about this. I, I had said that there was perhaps hundreds to thousands of people on the earth during the Tower of Babel. Uh, I actually, you know, I'm a math geek, so I did a little calculation. Uh, it was a little strange to do that, but I came up with a 2.5 uh, percentage Uh, growth rate, and determined that you could have had anywhere between 35,000 to maybe four times that people living on the earth during the Tower of Babel. So I might have underestimated last week. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the three sons of Noah, and they're credited with having the features that ultimately brought about what we consider to be the three major divisions of the human race. And uh, so you had uh, the racial origins from Asia, Africa, and Europe, which ultimately became or ultimately came about because of the dispersion, which we talked about last week. But to sort of represent the peoples of the world, tradition made each of the, at this point, kings, but the magi, uh, one from Asia, one from Europe, and, and one from Africa. And so that's how that came about. And then by the 14th century, which was a, a, a lot longer in the future from the time of the 6th century, uh, Armenian tradition identified them as Balthasar, king of Arabia, Melchior, king of Persia, and Gaspar, king of India. And so all of this is fairy tale. All of this is myth. There's really no truth to it. But you've probably seen your manger scenes recently and noticed that the racial features are, are, are very diverse. And that's why. And so it was representative of the whole world. Uh, There are relics in existence today that are attributed to them. I doubt they really are. But they emerged in the 4th century. They were transferred from Constantinople to Milan in the 5th century. And then they were transferred to Cologne in uh, 1162, where they remain enshrined today. So people will go to these shrines, the cult of the relics. They will go and they will worship these relics uh, in Europe. It's kind of strange. But isn't it amazing how mankind will take the truth, twist it, bend it, shape it, and turn it into something completely opposite to the truth? Well, that's the point I was trying to make there. But these ancient magi were a hereditary priesthood. Uh, They were of the Medes, as I've said already, the Median people. Now, the word magi or magi is from the Latinized form of the Greek word magoi. And we know the root and we know what it means these individuals were credited with profound and extraordinary religious knowledge. They were the truly wise men. In ancient times, they proved to be expert in the interpretation of dreams. And Darius the Great, who you probably remember from the books of the Bible that uh, speak of Darius the Great during the Persian occupation, uh, Darius the Great established them, these magi, over the state religion of Persia. Which again is Iran today. And this was before they became followers of Zoroaster, which was another religion that came up. So you have this ancient religion, ancient group of people, these magi. They ultimately became the supreme priestly caste of the Persian Empire. I want you to stop and think about that. They weren't Persians, but because they were part, they were Medes, and the Medo Persian Empire was ruled by Medes and Persians, they were actually from modern, today, what is modern-day Iran, and they came, as we know, to worship a Jewish Messiah. Hard to imagine that today, isn't it? But it happened. They were vested with civil, political, and religious authority, and they composed the upper house of the Council of the Magistanes, or magistrates. Oh, that's where we get the word magistrate from, which, of course, we're familiar in our English language. Their duties included the absolute choice and election of the king of the realm. They were the king-makers. Ultimately, through tradition, they were identified as kings, but they were actually king-makers. And they remained prominent during the Seleucid, Parthian, and Sassanian periods, that is, times of history in the Middle East. So we know a lot about them, actually. We really do. It's sad that the traditions have uh, obscured the truth on this. But Darius, actually, you'll remember Darius from the book of Daniel. He appointed a Jew named Daniel over this previously hereditary Median priesthood. So you have this very elite caste of Median priests called the Magi, and because of Daniel's stature in the empire, Darius appoints Daniel over these magistrates, over these Magi. You think they were happy with that? This was a hereditary priesthood. He, in their minds, had no business being the chief of the Magi but he was made chief of the Magi. He ultimately became a principal administrator in the Babylonian and Persian empires, and one of the titles given to Daniel was Rab Mag, which means the chief of the Magi. So Daniel was the chief of the Magi. Not always, but at this point in Persian history, he became the Rab Mag. Now, this appointment by Darius resulted in the plots leading to his attempted murder in the lion's den. And now we begin to understand just why they wanted to take him out. Okay, so history gives us a lot of information. And that's fascinating, but let's move on. Why were they there? Why, what were the Magi doing at this point in history? Well, we read in verse 2, they were looking for Jesus. Are you looking for Jesus today? Be, because you've heard that phrase, wise men still seek him. Sometimes you'll see that on a sticker, on the bumper sticker, or you'll see that uh, on a sign, wise men still seek him. Well, they were wise men, and they were seeking the Jewish Messiah. They sought a child that had been born king of the Jews. Now, that identifies part of what Jesus fulfilled. He is Savior, certainly. Uh, He is God. Uh, He is the suffering servant, but he's also the king. He's the Messiah, Mashiach Nagid, Messiah, the king, the savior. And they knew somehow that he was born at a particular time. Now, let's talk about Herod because Herod gets involved here. Uh, Herod had secured his title. By the way, guess what Herod's title was? King of the Jews. So this is a little bit of a problem for Herod because he is king of the Jews. And these very powerful, wise magi from the east, Come there looking for one who was born king of the Jews. Herod, by the way, was not born king of the Jews. He secured his title as king of the Jews from Augustus Caesar Caesar, through political enterprise. He kind of bought his way into that position. Now, the Persians, or the Parthians as they were known at that time, had recently restored Jerusalem to Jewish sovereignty. They actually were in control of Jerusalem until very very much in the recent past, At this time, and so the Romans had just gotten control of Jerusalem from, of all people, the Parthians. The Magi were Parthians. They were Medes, but they were from that kingdom or empire. It took the Romans three years and a five month siege for them to occupy the capital. So think about this Herod, king of the Jews, bought the title, so to speak, but he couldn't even be in Jerusalem without the help of the Roman Empire. And again, it took them three years and a five-month siege to install Herod as king of the Jews. And now these people come from another empire in the east that had been in power until recently looking for one born king of the Jews. You start to understand just why Herod was so threatened by this. He had gained the throne of a rebellious buffer state situated between two empires. So Herod is in control of this, but he's He's right on the border between the Roman and Parthian empires. A very fragile place to be in terms of his power. And so that explains some of his paranoia. But he had gained this throne, again, through political uh, enterprise. And so he lived in fear that his own subjects might conspire against him with the aid of Parthia. And now these Parthians come in looking for one born king of the Jews. Now, they're seeking one who had been born king of the Jews was a calculated insult to Herod. He would have been insulted by this, and indeed he was. He was actually not a Jew. He was a non-Jew who had contrived and bribed his way into that office with the aid of the Roman Empire. He was actually Idumean, which was the way they referred to Edomites at the time of Christ. So if you're familiar with Edom, a traditional enemy of Israel... An Edomite, an Idumean, if you will, was given the title king of the Jews, but he wasn't a Jew. And so these Parthian kingmakers entered Jerusalem at a very tenuous time in Herod's reign. So that sets the stage for what happens next. And these magi, they sought a child whose birth was announced by a star. That's pretty impressive when you think about it. As much as your parents probably were very happy when you were born, I don't think that there was a star in the sky announcing your birth. This is pretty significant. You would agree. Daniel, let's get back to Daniel for a minute, as the rab mag, as the chief of the Magi, may, we don't know, may have entrusted a messianic vision to a secret sect of the Magi. That's what we believe. We believe that the Magi, because Daniel was their chief, were given information that only Daniel, someone like Daniel, would have had. We don't have that information, but apparently they did. I mean, Daniel certainly had an incredible number of messianic prophecies. He recorded many of them, but I suspect not all. He foretold Gentile world history six centuries before the birth of Christ, predicting not just the actions of the Babylonian and Persian empires, or Medo-Persian empires, but also the Grecian and Roman empires as well, hundreds of years, 600 years before Christ. In fact, the angel Gabriel told him the precise day that Jesus would present himself as king to Jerusalem. So we know Daniel had supernatural and prophetic knowledge of events and historical predictions that he entrusted to us through his book, the book of Daniel, his prophecies. But I suspect there was a lot more that we're not aware of. And some of that knowledge apparently was given to some portion or sect of the Magi, the people we're talking about today, because they knew something about when Jesus would be born. This could explain why they were looking for a star to rise in the east at this exact time. And so when you think about it, it's kind of silly. You know, we, we, we imagine the kings are in the east, they see a star, which would have been in the west at that point, right, because Jesus is west of them, and they follow the star. That's clearly not what happened they saw a star in the east. That's how this whole thing started. And then they recognized this constellation, this prediction, whatever it is that happened, this stellar event or interstellar event, caused them to know that the Messiah had been born. So, these Gentiles, and that's what they were, they were not Jews, these Gentiles desired to worship the Jewish Messiah. Again, impossible to imagine this happening today. And yet... There are many within the Muslim world who are experiencing the gospel in incredibly supernatural ways today. Many Muslims are, are claiming to have had dreams, uh, Jesus or angels appearing to them in ge- dreams, and they are giving their lives to Jesus Christ as Christians, but as Muslim Christians, if you will, Christians that come out of the Muslim faith, and it's happening especially in Persia. Uh, I've heard, and it's really hard to know whether this is true, because they black out so much of the news, I've heard that there's a huge revival going on uh, in Persia specifically, but throughout the Muslim world, of Christians who are having dreams and experiencing supernatural uh, visions and coming to know Christ. Now, it doesn't surprise me, but it's amazing we don't hear about these things. If they are true, which I, I suspect they are, We don't hear very much about them. Well, you can know why, I'm sure. That's not news that anyone wants to get out of the Arab world. And very dangerous to publicly proclaim yourself a follower of Christ today, especially in that part of the world. Well, the promise of a Jewish king or a Jewish monarch was more than acceptable to these Magi. They had been instructed to expect this and looked forward to it. In fact, their own history was studied with Jewish nobles, ministers, and counselors, so they were not anti-Semitic in the least. And all of this fulfilled the prophecies of many Old Testament prophets who said that the light would come to the Gentiles, uh, that the Gentiles would be included in God's plan. This is talked about in the book of Acts. Uh, It's quoted from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah as well. So all of this begins to make sense. But how did Herod react? Well, I've set the stage. I've explained to you that Herod wouldn't have not would not have been very pleased with what is taking place here. So we read in verses three through six that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I actually think Herod was probably disturbed before he heard this. He was not a a man in in his right mind. In fact, if you know anything about Herod, I won't get into it today. What a family! What a drama! Uh, you think the reality TV shows of today are bad. Uh, wow. The, Herod, the Herodian dynasty was filled with all types of awful accounts. And, but we won't get into that today. We're just going to say that he was disturbed. But he was disturbed by this. He heard this and he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem was disturbed as well. It says, all Jerusalem with him. Now, I've explained why that would have been true. A lot of people kind of go over that. they don't really stop to think, why would, if it was just three guys from the east, You know, coming in bearing gifts, why were they so disturbed? Well, that's because the account has been changed to accommodate tradition. Notice, when he had called together all the people, that is the Jewish people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. That is, where had it been predicted that he would be born? Now, notice this. They get this right. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. They're referring to the prophet Micah in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So there's the prophecy. That's what Herod is told by those in the know among the Jews. But he was disturbed more because of the reasons I've already shared with you, who they were, what they said who they were looking for. These were things that disturbed Herod and indeed all the people. The sudden appearance of the Magi alarmed Herod and all the people he was ruling over at that time. Again, their reaction was understandable considering the history of the Roman Parthian rivalry. I've explained that already. They were probably traveling in force with every imaginable oriental pomp. These people would not have traveled in a very subtle way. They didn't need to. And they would have, had been, would have been accompanied by an adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safety. So this is a force coming into Jerusalem under these circumstances. <clears throat> Herod was suddenly very concerned with the Messianic prophecies in Scripture. And, of course, up until that point, I'm sure he didn't care much about them. But now he's very concerned. But Why? because he wants to try to eliminate any competition. See, the Jewish leaders certainly despised Herod the Great, and he despised them. But the experts in messianic prophecy predicted that Bethlehem Judah would be the birthplace of the Messiah. And that was correct. By the way, why does it say Bethlehem in Judah, or as it's sometimes translated, Bethlehem Ephrathah? Because there were two Bethlehems the way there are like seven or eight Washingtons in the state of New Jersey, there are many cities that you show up on the map in in the same state even with the same name. Well, in Israel, there were two Bethlehems. I believe there was one in Zebulon and there was the smaller of the two in Judah. And so, of course, Micah says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And just to clarify of the two, it's Bethlehem Judah. How could Micah have known that? Just stop a minute. How could he even know? How could... And how could Jesus fulfill that? How could they make that happen? They couldn't. It's God with the foreknowledge of knowing what's going to happen, telling us in advance what will be. And so I'm I'm, I'm fairly certain that Joseph and Mary didn't plan this thing. I know Jesus couldn't have. He was in the womb. But lo and behold, even though they were from Nazareth, living there, they had to come to Bethlehem. And we understand why. We talked about that uh, two weeks ago. With the census and everything, they had to come to the place where Joseph's family was from. And isn't it interesting that as they were there, this occurred, the Christ child was born, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I think you really have to uh, struggle against the truth if you deny the truth of Jesus Christ. You really have to struggle. It is not an easy truth to dismiss. I'm sure you would agree with me that there was a time in your life probably where you struggled with it. And the more you studied, the more you learned, the more you realized it's just too difficult to struggle against the truth. As uh, the Lord Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus when he was blinded, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to fight against what you know is true, isn't it? And that's what I think a lot of people are doing today. Well, we know that the prophecy was fulfilled. And apparently some knowledge was given to the Magi. For we read in verses 7 through 8, then Herod called the Magi secretly. That is, on the sly, he didn't want a big thing, you know, he just kind of wanted to get in touch with them. They had an impromptu secret meeting. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So at some point in the past, this star appeared in the east. And Herod asks when, had it appeared. Notice, had appeared. It didn't just appear. So that's a misnomer as well. A lot of people think the star appeared on, 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 on Christmas, you know, at that moment, over the manger. And that's, of course, how we view it and how we see it many times uh, portrayed to us. But that's not true. Uh, punching holes in another tradition. But it says here, uh, he called them secretly, found from them the exact time, notice, this star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. I think we know better, right, what this was all about. So in verses 7 and 8, we find out what actually happened was that the Magi journeyed from the east after first seeing the star. So, it had probably been close to two years since they first saw the star. Now, why would you say that, Pastor Tim? Why would you say it had been two years? Well, when you get down to verse 16, and we know what happens, it says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Ah, he knew when the star had appeared. He knew that. So he slaughtered all those born within the last two years in Bethlehem, all the male children. Why would he do that? Because he knew the exact time the star had appeared. And that gives us a key or a clue. Maybe he was a little bit more conservative and 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 he took out more children than he needed to, but between a year to two years, clearly... He had decided that he was going to kill all the children born just to make sure that he got to the Messiah, which is horrific, but it gives us an understanding of when the star appeared. Now, it would have taken some amount of time to travel to Jerusalem as well from Parthia or Persia, and they probably knew uh, that he had been born in Bethlehem, but they had no way to find him now. It had been at least a year, possibly two. They have no idea where he is. They knew that he had been born. They probably knew what Micah had said. I'm sure they were learned. They they knew what the Jewish people, the Jewish scholars had told Herod. They knew that he had been born in Bethlehem, but they show up and they clearly have no idea where he might be now, two years later, up to two years later. So this is a problem in the sense that they don't know where he is. They don't know where to go. And, and that makes it more challenging for them. But at this point, the star had only announced the Messiah's birth according to the scriptures. That's all the star had accomplished at this point. It had appeared at some point over the last couple of years in the sky in the east, announcing the birth of Messiah. But now something radically different takes place. Now, of course, Herod provided them with the child's last known location. But to assume that they were still in Bethlehem, Probably pretty foolish, since they didn't live in Bethlehem. Joseph's family lived in Bethlehem, but they didn't know where he was. But what was Herod hoping to do? Find him and kill him. And he stood a better chance of finding the child this way than seeking him openly. So this is a surreptitious or a discreet way of trying to eliminate the Messiah, who maybe he believed had been born, maybe he didn't, but any threat to his reign, which again was tenuous at best. Now, he had no intention of worshiping the Jewish Messiah, but the Magi were probably unaware of his plan. They had no way of knowing who Herod was necessarily. Uh, Maybe they suspected, maybe they didn't, but later we see God warned them in a dream uh, not to go back and tell Herod. So at some point they found out. So what about these Magi? Well, how did they find the child, the Christ child? How did they get there? The, The star told them that he had been born. They knew that he had been born in Bethlehem, certainly, Herod seems to have uh, communicated that to him as well, uh, to them as well. uh, But also, they may have known that because they were familiar with the prophecies. But How do you find a child that was born within the last two years in a a little town called Bethlehem? Well, let's read in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay. So that's pretty much what we know about the Magi. We learned a few things along the way as we've taken the time to study. The Magi were led directly to Jesus. How? Oh, this is clearly something miraculous. This isn't just a star appearing in the east announcing something. And what could a star appearing in the east be? It could have been a comet. It could have been some astronomical event. Who knows what it was? It could have been a planet. We don't know what it was, but we do know this. The Magi had traveled toward Bethlehem, but Joseph and Mary were from where? They were from Nazareth. Did they stay in Bethlehem with Joseph's family? Possibly. For two years? Probably not. Did they move back to Nazareth where they were from? Most likely. Wherever they were, they probably, well, we know they weren't living in the manger, So now you have to totally correct your manger scenes on your front lawn. First of all, you have to wait two years. And when you do bring the manger, uh, when you do bring the Magi, it's not to the manger, it's to a house. So you see, isn't it interesting, though, how we just make assumptions? But when we read the scripture, we learn the truth. Now, my goal here today isn't to ruin your manger scene or your Christmas, My goal is to show you that the Word of God has so much for us if we truly look at it and open our hearts to the truth. But don't assume to know the truth unless you've studied the Scriptures. Amen? And this is why it's so vitally important to study the Word of God on Sundays and Wednesdays and personally and in home groups and all the opportunities we have. Now, if you've never known this information before. It doesn't mean you can't be a Christian. It doesn't mean you weren't saved. But I think you have a right to know the truth. And the scripture is recorded for us in the book of Matthew, which most of us have read in perhaps multiple times. Why is this important? Well, at this point, the star that had appeared in the east, I keep pointing east, (laughs) actually directed them right to the infant Messiah, maybe a toddler at this point, but this was no ordinary star or orbiting planet. This was some type of miraculous occurrence in the heavens. It was the same star, but something now had happened. Now, some have suggested, and we have no idea, that the star that appeared hadn't been there before, um, and then the was now visible. And over time, over the year or two that, between his birth and this moment, that it, of course, the stars have a way of moving in our sky, you know, it has to do with the orbit of our planet. It has to do with uh, orbital mechanics. But, you know, a planet could do that. And then all of a sudden now it's in a different part of the sky, right? And they have said that perhaps other stars or there was some type of supernova or some type of event that took place where the star that had been in the east was now right over where the child was. And it was maybe seven to ten times brighter because uh, of some other astronomical event. All of these are good explanations. It doesn't matter. God orchestrated it to bring the Magi to the Christ child. This was a miraculous occurrence in the heavens in either case. So you can try to explain it away with science, but science may explain what happened, but not why and when. That's God. Amen? Okay, we're almost done. So this miraculous GPS enabled them to find the incarnate Son of God. They got there right where he was, and they were overjoyed that they had found him and that the Lord himself had led them directly to himself. You see, if you're seeking God, he will do whatever is miraculously necessary as you seek him to bring you to the place where you'll find him. Can I hear an amen? And that's how we got here today, individually, who we are. We have come to know Christ because Christ led us to himself. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us And the star is a type of that in our lives, leading us to the truth of who Jesus is. And there they are, overjoyed. Gentiles worshiping the Jewish Messiah on a day we refer to as Three Kings Day or or Epiphany. Clearly not the day that we celebrate the birth of Christ, but within a short period of time afterward. They found the child being cared for by his mother Mary in a house perhaps in Bethlehem, perhaps in Nazareth, perhaps somewhere else. And they presented gifts of profound prophetic significance. Gold. Gold speaks of his kingship, for he is the king of heaven and earth. Frankincense. This was a spice used in the priestly duties of the temple. And of course, Jesus is our great high priest. And myrrh. Myrrh was a spice or an ointment that was used to embalm bodies. And this speaks of his death as our Messiah. King, priest, Savior. And so we see the Magi brought not only gifts, but a message as to who the Messiah would be in his life, as he lived and gave his life ultimately for each and every one of us. Amen? Amen? Amen. So I asked the worship team to come up, And by the way, just a little point, Jesus Christ will receive gold and frankincense in the millennium, in the kingdom age, according to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. Interestingly, he'll receive gold and frankincense, but myrrh is not mentioned. Well, why could that be? Well, I'm going to read something for you. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, we read that just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And that's why there's no myrrh in the millennium. So we've learned a little bit about who Jesus is, we've learned a little bit about the history and the background how some of these traditions have obscured the truth. But the most important question is, have you come to worship him this morning? Say amen. Amen. If you have, are you looking for Jesus? Or are you looking for something else in your life? Are you concerned with the messianic prophecies in Scripture concerning his imminent return, the way the Magi were? Are you trying to find him but don't know where to look? There is a light that will guide you directly to him. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light that guides us to the place where we can find Jesus Christ. If you've come to worship him, then it is he who deserves our gifts, which we lay at his feet. So be a wise man or a wise woman this morning. Worship him as your king. Come to him as your priest, as your priestly intercessor, and receive him as your savior. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. It's always wonderful to take time to study your word and how you use your word to speak to our hearts and challenge us. Oh, Lord God, we desire to know you more and to make you known more. Lord, we acknowledge that on that Christmas morning that you became flesh. And then you lived that perfect life and then you died on the cross in the flesh for our sins. And then you rose again in the flesh, in that risen body, with the promise to come again to judge the living and the dead, and to establish your kingdom. And you will reign forever and ever, and we will reign with you. These precious promises are the promise of the gospel made to us through your word in prophecy, recorded in history, the message of the gospel that goes forth today in and through our hearts to the world. O Lord, may we be those wise men and women that continually seek you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.